You're listening to Speaking of Stories, a podcast where authors meet to talk about themselves, their books, and their view of different parts of life and society. In this episode, we'll hear from Lucy Dillon, a British feel-good writer known for her romantic stories about, for example, love, friends, rescue dogs, and cake. I mean, that made it a very difficult book to write. It made it a very difficult difficult book to finish mm. and I think this is something that feel-good writers probably struggle with more than people imagine. I think people imagine feel-good fiction is extremely easy. And Katarina Bivald, a Swedish author also writing in the feel-good genre, whose first book, The Readers of Broken Wheel Recommend, is currently sold in 25 countries. For example, after the last general election in Sweden where the uh, Swedish Democrats, that's our racist anti-immigration party, they gained more seats in Parliament. So I couldn't mm-hmm. write for days afterwards. You're listening to Speaking of Stories. My name's Lucy Dillon. And I'm Katarina Bivald. Chapter 1. Escaping into the world of books as a child and mind travel. So I once spent three glorious weeks visiting some of the best independent bookshops in the UK. And I came across this little bookshop in this small town in close to the Scottish border, St. Boswell, the Main Street Trading Company. And it's run by this lovely woman, one of those naturally charming people who had before that used to work in publishing in London. So Mm -hmm. she had quit her job in London, moved to this small town in the Scottish border, opened a bookshop which she ran with her husband. They had a cafe, they had a small daily linked to it. And I thought to myself while sitting there sipping coffee, if only there had been a dog, (laughs) I would have been in the middle of a Lucy Dillon novel. Oh, that's a wonderful thing to think. And ironic too, because I'm from very near the Scottish borders. So <laughs> so I can imagine that bookshop perfectly. It's maybe one that I'm running in a parallel parallel universe. Exactly. Perhaps. And in a way, it sort of brought together what I think is some of the main themes in your book. The, the physical move. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not sure in her case if it was a reluctant change, but I think I, that's often a part of what I love about your books, that people are perhaps reluctant to change and end up doing something they perhaps mm-hmm. didn't even know they were dreaming of in the end. Yeah. Resulting, of course, in emotional growth and a lot of unexpected friendships. Yes. Well, that's a, that's a great way of thinking about it. I think um, sometimes you have to put yourself in a very different environment to be able to see yourself clearly. And no. So that's why quite a lot of my books do involve people being uprooted or <laughs> physically or emotionally. But have those themes played out in your life as well? Um, well, I did make a, a big move. I moved from, um, well, first of all, I moved from um, a little town not far from the Scottish borders uh, down to London um, after I left university. And then I was in London for 10 years and then I moved moved to a little town on the Welsh borders, <laughs> which was very different. Um, <clears throat> so I know what it's like to go from uh, a very busy, bustling place where mm. no, nobody really knows you to a very small place where where everybody does know you and uh, and quite often knows things about you that you don't know they know. <laughs> as, as I found out when, when I was out walking my dog a few weeks ago and somebody said, oh, I see there was a white BMW parked outside the house. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think um, I identify a lot with the characters who've, who've mm. had a big move. How about dreams? Have you always dreamt about being a writer? Um, yes, I have, I suppose. I, mean, I think I went through a phase where I didn't know how you become a writer. Mm. And I think that for most people is, is the biggest obstacle is how do you actually go from making up stories in your head and reading books and loving them um, and actually sitting down and 
not, I mean, even turning them into a reality on a computer is one thing, but then how you turn them into real books yeah. is, a, is a mystery, really, isn't it? So I didn't really think about be- actually becoming a writer till I worked in publishing, and I saw a bit of how it worked and how, how possible it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think uh, once you have worked in publishing, you can see just how much, what a long process it is. <laughs> and was that inspiring or terrifying? Yes. <laughs> Uh, Catherine and I are now sharing a knowing look <laughs> <laughs> about the process of editing. <laughs> um, I think it was it was very useful for me to be an editor first before mm. I was a writer because it made me realise that the editing process is it's not a criticism, it's not a deconstruction of your book, it's meant to be a process of improvement. And and also other other elements of it were demystified, you know, how and, uh, how it changes through mm. the course of an editing process but it doesn't mean that you're losing sight of what you originally wrote mm. I mean is that, is that how you feel about editing? Yes, yes definitely for me as a writer it was also the discovery that I wasn't alone in mm. caring about my book because I wrote my first book I wrote it over a number of years and I had gotten mm. of course the the re- reaction letters quite a uh-huh. few of them I have quite a collection oh. and all that time you're alone with it mm-hmm. you know your story but you don't know if it's any good and you have mm. no one else that really cares what's happened to it So suddenly having an editor and a publishing company and lots of professional people caring about your book, it was sort of like going from being a single mom to being a single mom with oh. a doctor and a nursery. And <laughs> So what was what was the moment like when you got your first acceptance? It was an was a answering machine message, oh. so I could listen to it constantly over oh. the next few days. Uh, uh-huh. This great, great woman, I'm still deeply in love with her, my publisher, mm-hmm. who told me that she loved my book and she'd read it and she wanted to publish it oh. or something to that effect. It's such a magical moment, yes, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. I think it's like going on a series of blind dates and thinking, oh, there's nobody there for me. And then suddenly you meet the person who sees the thing that you see. Exactly. So, Lucy, tell me a little bit about yourself before you became a writer. Is there a before? Before I was a writer, I was a reader. <laughs> I think I think like all writers, I, mm. I read and I read and I read, and eventually all the stories in my head just started spilling out. Um, I grew up on the by the seaside in the north of England, and I was always a reader. Uh, I've got a, a sister who's only just younger than me, so I think I was sort of put in a corner with a book at a very early age in order to give my mum some free time. So I just read everything. I can't remember not being able to read, um, and because obviously the north of England is not the most clement place. There was a lot of time spent indoors reading while it was raining. Uh, and I read, I think I, the first things I read was Greek mythology. I got very into that. <laughs> got a sense of the dramatic from a very early age. Not the stories you ended up writing later on. Well, you'd say that. <laughs> I think I think a lot of uh, a lot of the sort of idea of um, divine punishment and fate and uh, impossible relationship tasks have carried over into my life. Um, but I read lots of, you know, Enid Blyton and then I moved on to things like Agatha Christie and the the book that sticks out in my mind most is The Thornbirds by Colleen mm. McCulloch which I found on my mum's bookshelves when I was about 10. Oh. I didn't I did an interview recently where um I was asked what my f- most memorable book was and I said it was The Thornbirds it really opened my eyes to all kinds of things and my mum phoned me up and she said I did not know that. <laughs> I had I no wonder, idea. I wonder if kids nowadays will have that experience of finding books on their parents' shelves. I wonder. I wonder, it's interesting, What, isn't it? Will they just turn to the internet? That's a very interesting question, isn't it? Because I think the wonderful thing about books, I'm sure it's the same with you, mm. when I was growing up, with the images they made in my head and the the exercise of using my brain and my imagination really strengthened it. And 
being able to see things through the pages of a book. And I wonder now with children whether because things are naturally more visual. I don't even think that I don't think children are lazier now. I don't think they're any less imaginative. But the the, the methods by which they are entertained are much more visual. They're not as I don't know interactive in a way. I mm. wonder. I wonder if they will really because all those images were in my head. I think it was a, a th- my mum's. My mum's idea of me sitting there thinking about some of the things that happened in the Thornbirds. I think she, I think she found that more disturbing than the idea of me watching the Thornbirds on television because then at least you could just turn it off. Whereas when the ideas were in my head, that <laughs> they were true. there. Katrina, tell me about where you grew up in Sweden. I grew up in uh, in this uh, suburb quite close to Stockholm, about forty minutes south of Stockholm, mm-hmm. called uh, Västerhaninge. Quite small town, although it is of course close to a major town. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we didn't have much around, and I read pretty uh, much. So actually, your your inner world was much bigger than your yes. outer world. Yes, it was definitely. Because mm. I mean, that's one of the things I find most amazing about reading your book. Mm. Sitting on the plane, reading it, feeling as I was in uh, just the middle of nowhere in the middle of America. Is, is did you find as a child that having reading things took you to places that you couldn't go to? Definitely, it sort mm. of opened my mind to experiences, feelings, adventures, destinies that I wouldn't otherwise have have been a part of. And if you read a lot as a child, it makes, I think, sort of real life seem unreal in comparison, like a background or a backdrop yes. to, to the real adventures going on in your head mm-hmm. as you read. And have you travelled much since you've become an adult? <laughs> I travelled a little bit, although only on vacation. <laughs> I live about 20 minutes from, from where I was born. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've lived there for my entire adult life. I moved two years ago, two houses down the street. <laughs> so I'm pretty much stuck to travelling in my mind. Uh-huh. But you've travelled quite a lot over the UK. Yes, I spent three weeks travelling uh, before my book was published in England. So I went there first when the advanced copies were being sent out to the bookshops and I basically just went around visited bookshops. I visited, I think, 20 or 30 of them in three weeks. That is amazing. Yeah, did, it was an amazing trip. Did you have a favourite place in England that you visited? I loved all of it, but especially the countryside. Yeah. But it doesn't matter if it's the countryside up north or... Because the really quite strange thing is that you ended up travelling very close to where I live. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we could have had tea if exactly. only I'd known. But don't you think it would have been slightly strange for an unknown, unpublished Swedish author to suddenly knock on your door saying, let's have tea? Oh, I don't know. I think strange, stranger things happen in books. I mean, how <laughs> else are people meant to meet and make friends? Exactly. It could have been a great book, actually. Yeah. Swedish because, author ends up <laughs> unexpectedly visiting oh, a friend. Yeah. Kind of kind of like the holiday, but <laughs> exactly. But, lesser. but you visited Hay on Wye, which is yes. sort of the, the English bookshop capital. Mm, really. Yeah. It's this tiny town with lots and lots of bookshops. Mm-hmm. I think there, I mean, bookshops everywhere is, is struggling, of course, and lots of it's uh, closing down. So when I visited them, they sort of thought about the glorious days and where there used to be a lot of bookshops and they ended with saying, well, I don't think we have more than 25 bookshops now <laughs> in this small village. What is it, 3,000 people? It's absolutely tiny. Yeah. And it's, it's quite an unusual town because it's literally on the border with Wales. So in Wales, they believe it's a Welsh town. And in England, they think of it as an English town. <laughs> and all the signs are in half Welsh, half English. Yeah, and all the signs leads to a bookshop. All the signs lead to a bookshop. And I think they have an old cinema, which used, to, which used to be a cinema, and it's now just completely full of books. Yeah, and the old fire station, I think, as well, filled with books. And at one time, the castle was filled with books. It's Everything was basically filled with books. Those you must, everybody must go to Hay on Wine. Yes. Just take away some of their books, please. Definitely. 
Chapter 2 Obsession with Princess Cake, Dog Farts That Make You Fall Asleep, and Writing Feel Good Doesn't Always Have to Feel Good. So Lucy, tell me a little bit about why you're in Sweden right now. This is my first visit to Sweden and I'm very excited about it. Uh, The main reason for coming over was to take part in a Books and Dreams event uh, in Stockholm last night, Mm. um, which was just absolutely fantastic. So many lovely readers turned up and it was an event with, with five or six other fascinating authors. I, mean, I don't mean that I'm a fascinating author and everybody else was <laughs> equally fascinating. I mean, other people were there and they were fascinating. It was just a tremendous experience because it's quite surreal to sell well in a foreign in a country you haven't been mm. to because you don't really know what it is about your books that people like. So to actually meet so many Swedish readers and to talk about my books with them. A treat. We love your books here. You're very kind. Yes. We have excellent taste in books. We have excellent taste in books. It is, it's quite strange to me because obviously in the UK we are just mad about Scandinavian noir crime and very dark stories about psychological murderers. Yeah, that's basically the image people have of Sweden nowadays. Yes, that and flat pack wardrobes <laughs> and meatballs. <laughs> no, we, we love Sweden in the UK. I think, I think of all the European countries, Sweden is the one that I think we have a sort of uh, matey relationship with. I don't think the Swedes have ever done anything that the English don't like. I mean, we love ABBA. We love IKEA. We love your excellent architecture. We think you're great people. <laughs> what's not to love? What's, what's not to love? As I have said so many times since I've been here, what is not to love about a country that can invent princess cake? <laughs> yes, we talked about the readers. We talked about the other writers at the event yesterday. Let's oh, talk about the cake. We didn't mention the main thing, no. which was that at the end of the lovely talk I had with Karina, she brought out a princess cake for me which was such a treat it's um it's something i discovered in a bakery in london and i just think it's amazing and she brought a whole one out for me i'm, I'm looking you can't see but i'm looking <laughs> moved very very touched if she'd brought out a puppy i don't think i would have reacted in a more excited no, way no and the 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 audience would have been surprised if you'd started eating it the puppy, yeah. yes, they would. That'd have been so, yes, completely different feeling. <laughs> it's not. It's not very on message. Bad, bad publicity. <laughs> bad Lucy Dillon, yes. K- Katrina, do you have a dog? No, I haven't. I had one when I grew up. A collie. Mm. A border collie. No, uh, no collie. Yeah, yeah. Like is a, it called border collie? In um, well, there are different kinds. There's oh. the kind of black and white ones. And uh, no. Did it have long hair? Yes. Was it was it like Lassie? Yes. Ah, that's called a. Rough. Although very cranky. Yeah. Which was bad with children. I mean, having a cranky dog yeah. looking like Lassie. That's, well, that's not very on-message for Lassie, is no, it? No, it's not. <laughs> no. Uh, yes, they're, they're called rough-haired collies. Ah. I can, I can reveal. My, my aunt and uncle had one of those. It was mm. called Tara. She was a lovely dog. They get knotty, don't mm. they? Yes. Yeah. Yes, he did. How about you? I have two basset hounds uh, called Violet and Bonham. And they basically control my working life. They make me start working early in the morning. They make me stop working at lunchtime so I can walk them. And then they make me stop working again at 5.30 so I can feed them. They are hard taskmasters. But that that sounds excellent because I think there's this... If you, you're thinking of, of women writers or women readers, it's <laughs> easy to associate them with cats, Yes, I think. In fact, my friend pub- publishers have put cats on both my books. And there are no cats in my books, but they sort of feel they need one. Yeah, isn't, isn't that a weird, a weird assumption people make about women? Exactly. <laughs> women writers and cats. But dogs make more sense then. Well, dogs, I think, are very companionable for writers because, mm. I mean, particularly fairly low energy dogs. Like, I mean, I, c- I couldn't deal with a collie because they're so intelligent. It would be like having, 
you know, it would be like having a, a scientist sitting there going, you know, amuse me, amuse me, give me a Rubik's Cube, I need to do a crossword puzzle. I, I couldn't, I couldn't cope with that. So my dogs basically sleep when I'm working and then they wake up and they want to walk. So that, that kind of suits me. And they force you to sit, get outdoors. Absolutely, absolutely. And at the end of the day, I mean, the, the, the secret that nobody knows about Basset Hounds is that they just emit this sleeping gas. So quite often I'll be sitting on the sofa and the thing is they, they think they're tiny. My dogs weigh about 35 kilos. So the pair of them together weigh 70 kilos, which is like having an adult human sitting on your knee. And they sit either side of me on a chair and fall asleep and just slowly compress themselves into me. And they let out this gas that makes me fall asleep. It's just, it's just the weirdest thing. They, it's like ether. But they are lovely. And they are in kennels this week while I'm in Sweden, which I'm sure they're not very pleased about. But No, they, they probably want some cake. Yeah, they probably want some cake. I always get teased by my friends because when I leave them at home, I leave QVC, the shopping channel, on to amuse them. And my friends always joke that I'm going to come back one day and discover Violet's ordered 15 wolf fleeces. <laughs> <laughs> Bonham's ordered an exercise bike or something. That they'll never use. <laughs> they'll never use. Or so I've heard. <laughs> Violet, hmm. uh, Violet, who is 11, I rehomed her. Hmm. Um, we were thinking about getting a puppy. But then we went to see the breeders and Violet had been returned because her owner had got ill. Mm. So uh, they'd sent her back. And uh, I just took one look at her. She took one look at me. And it was like it was like the best kind of blind date, mm. actually. We just completely fell in love. Um, and after that, I, I got quite passionate about, about animal rescue because mm. I think it is very important to, to give dogs a second chance because they're not always in the rescue shelter because they're bad. You know, it's often... Seldom, I think. It's it? seldom. More often because they're... Oh no! Possibly we're bad. Exactly, exactly. Or it's big, you know people have to give up dogs because they move house, or because they separate, or because mm. they get a different job and they can't look after them, or because they're allergic. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons why why lovely adult dogs end up needing mm. a second home. So it's quite important to me in my stories to include a bit of a message about that. And in fact, one of the one of the most moving one of the most moving and difficult books I wrote, Hundred Pieces of Me. Mm. Um, it was difficult because the storyline in that was breast cancer, so that was difficult as well. But it also involved greyhound rescue. Mm. And people are so cruel to greyhounds, and they make such wonderful pets. They're, you know, they're very gentle. They don't need a huge amount of exercise. It's hard to associate a racing greyhound with those wonderful Elizabethan-looking dogs mm. with the jewelled collars. I mean, they're so elegant. So it's quite important to me to include a message about that in the book. Uh, and it, it really kind of makes me happy if I get messages from readers saying oh we were thinking about getting a puppy but we mm. looked into greyhounds and now we have this enormous greyhound in our sitting room that must be a great feeling it is actually it, it really is and i kind made of made an impact yeah I've, I've in a tiny little way mm. i've changed a living creature's life yeah. for the better and that that is really important to me both lives i think both the owner and the dogs that's very true so you mentioned it was hard for you to write about breast cancer yes it was um i think all writers slightly dread writing about something that then goes on to happen in real life. I mean, that's mm. always been... It's a very silly thing to think. And in fact, my I once voiced that concern to my agent. She said, well, come on, if that was true, you would be married to a vet by now. You would be... <laughs> you would have three children. You would have a house in France. You know, all the things I've that written is about. True. It's true. But I'd always really shied away from it. And it was a storyline that I tackled in A Hundred Pieces of Me because mm. I felt I wanted to write about something that obviously affects a lot of people. Um, and it was it was a hard book to write anyway. It was made even more hard because I'd almost finished the book. I'd gone home to see my mum and dad in Cumbria just to write the last few chapters for a little holiday. And about 
24 hours after I arrived, my mum was diagnosed with breast cancer, which was just awful. Um, and I suppose the only tiny silver lining in all this was that because I'd spent six months researching the book, I had all the facts and figures at my fingertips. And my dad obviously was in shock and mm. my mum was in shock. And at least I was able to you know, ask some questions. Um, so in a way, you, your book helped. It had, in, you. A, in a tiny little way, it did, and I guess uh, if if that was if that was going to have happened anyway, I would rather have been in that position of having mm. some knowledge. Um, and that, I mean, that made it a very difficult book to write. It made it a very dif- difficult book to finish. Mm. And I think this is something that feel-good writers probably struggle with more than uh, people imagine. I think people imagine feel-good fiction is extremely easy. And it's very glib. And the one thing I feel as a feel-good writer is that you're always talking about issues that people will have had a connection with. Mm. So if they've made an emotional investment in the book, you have to remain true to that experience. You can't make things too easy at the end. You can't sort of wave a magic wand. Even as a, as a writer, you long to do that. Mm. You really want to make everything happy. If you've got readers who have believed in you up to that point, and then you kind of do a complete... They all live happily ever after. So that, that made that book incredibly difficult to finish. And... Um, I still have conversations with readers now who don't feel it finished in the right way, which is, is a compliment, really, yeah. because it shows how much they invested in the yeah, book. Yeah, that is true. We work, of course, as a reader and writer towards the, the happy end and the happy mm-hmm. ever after. But before that, it's basically an emotional struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, and I think another reason it's sometimes challenging to be a feel-good writer is you still have to have a sort of light, humorous touch. Yes. <clears throat> and yeah. sometimes life isn't light and no, humorous. absolutely not. And... I think the the compromise you have to make at the end of the book is if you can't make everything, it's like the the, the godmother in is it mm. Sleeping Beauty. If you can't make everything all right, then you have to at least give your characters the strength and the ability to make everything right eventually. Yeah. Um, and I think people people can be quite dismissive about feel good fiction as just being you know people sitting around drinking tea, which I freely admit happens a lot in my books. <laughs> people sit around a lot drinking tea, but. Um, I think most feel-good fiction does deal with some quite, quite difficult and, and deep mm. things in life. And even even lovely novels about bookshops deal <laughs> deal with loneliness, aging, failed relationships, secrets. I mean, they're all things that that can blight lives. But mm. I suppose the gift of feel-good fiction is showing there are ways out of that darkness. Chapter three: Escaping into small towns that only exists in fantasy. And when a man comments your book with the words, my wife liked it. So, Katrina, when you're not writing, what else are you involved with? I'm not that much involved with it anymore, but I used to be very active with different non-governmental organizations like the Red Cross. Or, ah. And I worked professionally with it for a long time. Uh, tell me about that. The professional side of it is very boring. I basically wrote reports. That's not boring. That they must have been. <laughs> they must have been about quite, quite. Yeah, well, it's not. It's not as fun as writing as writing fiction. Uh-huh. Well, not not as imaginative, maybe. No. So, so Red Cross events in in Sweden, maybe. In, in Sweden, yeah, I was active within the Red Cross Youth. Uh-huh. I became a member when I was fourteen. Mm. I visited Auschwitz. The organization organized oh, these trips as a part of their work against racism. Uh, that must have had a tremendous impact on you. Yes, yes, it did. Around the same time, I also read the the autobiography of Nelson Mandela. So as you can imagine, wow. I was a very idealistic teenager <laughs> after that. 
completely set on saving the world. Well, quite right. Yes, of course, of course. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm still working on that one. <laughs> Book by book. Yes, exactly. But it's interesting what you what you talked about uh, dealing with serious issues in books. Mm-hmm. Because in a way, I include part of that knowledge or experience or perspective in my books. I mentioned in The Readers of Broken Will recommend I include some sort of, of acknowledgement of homophobia or racism mm-hmm. or... Uh, economical hardship, but at the mm-hmm. same time, it's a feel-good novel, so I keep the focus of it. I have gay characters, but they don't, in the story, experience homophobia. Mm-hmm. Because my argument is that LGBTQ people, we definitely know that homophobia exists. We don't have to see it every time we read a book. Mm. And I think it's, I mean, I think the way you handle that is beautifully subtle in mm. the book, because you actually see it through the eyes of people who perhaps espouse views that are not current, but the way it's done through the letters and through the memories, I think exactly. actually makes it more poignant for the reader because they, they, they sense the, the amount of time that the characters have had to deal with these problems. Mm. It's not just right there in your face. It's something that you, it's kind of spun into the fabric of the town. Thank you. No, I really, I, I love those bits. Mm. I thought they were really clever. But what it also means is that I, I create this fictional small town completely free of homophobia or racism or anti-immigration. Yes. <laughs> Uh, which is, of course, how the world ought to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, for example, after the last general election in Sweden, where the uh, Swedish Democrats, that's our racist anti-immigration party, mm-hmm. they gained more seats in parliaments. So I couldn't mm-hmm. write for days afterwards because I couldn't mm-hmm. sort of put myself in that small town where racism didn't exist and yeah. where people were basically nice. Strange, but nice. Yeah. So I had I talked with a friend about this, my inability to write due to uh, to uh, <laughs> the problems in the world. And he looked at me and says, oh, don't worry, just imagine you're writing science fiction. (laughs) It it helped. Really? (laughs) Slightly depressing. That is depressing, isn't it? Right, I don't think it's a problem that's that's, uh, common only to Sweden. I think it's happening in every... I mean, there were some very depressing results as well after the British general elections too. And it is... I think when you are quite idealistic, it is a bit of a shock to realise that there are people in the world who do think like that. I know. Thank goodness for Broken Wheel slash Longhampton. Exactly. They're yes. not in our books. <laughs> not in our books. I think one of the one of the little interesting similarities you and I have is that we've both written books about bookshops. Yes. And we're obviously both very avid readers. And I think it's very interesting to be a writer who's also a reader. And I know that when I met some of the readers um, at the events this week, it was kind of doubly exciting because I remember feeling really excited myself as a reader meeting a writer. <laughs> so I was wondering, do you, do you have a lot of contact with your readers? Quite a lot. I think partly because my book is also about women exchanging letters. It, it mm. inspires this. Uh, quite a lot, many readers actually send me handwritten letters. How lovely. Yes, they're How amazing. Lovely. Or little postcards or, oh. and of course, the Facebook messages and so forth. Mm-hmm. That is another interesting thing, that having social media means you actually get a better sense of who is reading your books. And do, is there a typical reader for you? I think I think women, to a larger extent, read my book. But then mm-hmm. again, women read. Women read. Exactly. Uh-huh. Uh, I'd say slightly older women, and I use older <laughs> now as relative to my own age, which oh, means, of yeah. course, women in the, the year, best years of their life. Yes, <laughs> Yes, and old for me is now over 95. <laughs> <laughs> I hope women over 95 reads my book. Yes, I, I hope they do too. I'm sure everybody would. Mm. I mean, I think it's one of the interesting things about this type of fiction is that um, it's sometimes regarded as just for women. Mm. I mean, do you think there are elements of feel-good that appeal to men as well as women? I do. I think I think quite a lot of men likes feel-good and it's sort of a undeveloped 
okay. side of the... I'm thinking about A Man Called Ove. Mm. Uh, oh. Swedish book about basically a cranky old, old man. And it's selling in huge numbers all over the world. Partly, yeah. I think, because it's a feel-good about a man. Yeah. Well, so we, men can relate. We actually read that for my reading yeah. circle. Did you like it? Oh, we loved it. Yes, it's we so loved beautiful. It. We, I mean, I, I find with my reading circle that uh, this is one I have in my village at home. And they're, they're ladies who are very, very kind. It's very Longhampton. They sort of mm. took pity on me being on my own and invited <laughs> me to join their reading circle. Um, and they're very, very li- nice people. And in fact, one of them is the person I've dedicated my new book to because oh. she's such a great neighbour. Um, but normally the circle gets most animated when we really hate a book. It's like, oh, this is rubbish. Because, But with A Man Called Erva, I mean, for a start, it took us 10 minutes to just sit around saying, Erva, Erva, <laughs> and just enjoying the Erva pronunciation. We, we loved it. And we mm. were pronouncing all the names in, in very bad Swedish accents. But there was just something so, so well, sweet is the wrong word, but just so decent about mm. that book that just when you finished it, you thought actually the world is... It's kind of decent. It can yeah. be a good place. Um, I think it's it's interesting to f- to wonder what the response to that book would have been had it been packaged in a more pink mm. way. Exactly. Because, because it is a classic kind of feel-good book. And I think, isn't that what uh, readers look for when they, they look for a feel-good that's sort of that you can put it down and think the world is a decent place after yeah. all. And I, I think men enjoy a feel-good book as much as the next person. <laughs> so do I. I. I don't know about you, but I read reviews and comments from readers and I mm-hmm. Google my name on a regular basis. Oh and I read the comments on Amazon. And one of my favourite comments, by far, I have two favourites, one positive and one negative. And the <laughs> positive was by a man who simply said, my wife liked it. Five stars. Oh, my, my, my wife, liked. wife liked it. That's all you need to know. <laughs> I think quite a lot of men read the books bought by their wife. Mm-hmm. I think that is a whole short story in yeah. four words, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. There's, so, there's so much between those words. Exactly. He totally read it. And then, of course, the, the negative review, one star, tries to satisfy all groups of readers, gay, lesbians, bisexuals, recovering alcoholics, etc., Those recovering alcoholics just don't have enough books written for them. I know. I mean, lesbian recovering alcoholics, they just dominate the market. And the gay, lesbian, bisexual recovering alcoholic. Ridiculous. Don't don't ever read your bad reviews. (laughs) There there does come a point, I mean, I say this is a kind of sad old hand, but there does come a point where you just have to walk away. (laughs) Because you will drive yourself mad. Walk away from Amazon.com. The only reviews you will ever remember are the one-star ones. You can have mm. you can have three hundred and fifty-five star reviews, and they will all just vanish like that as soon as somebody says, mm. "My wife hated it." My wife hated it. <laughs> My dog ate it. <laughs> I didn't like the adjectives. No, you, I think I think we you know we focus too much on on people who don't mm. enjoy books, but actually people who take the people who take the trouble to write any kind of review to be honest i yes. think fair enough yes you know. that is very true that's fair enough you just don't have to take it too much to heart mm. so katrina tell me what is your next book about uh, i'm it's very early in the writing process but i think it's going to be uh, take place in a fictional town apparently mm-hmm. i can't write a book without making up the entire town fair and they're, enough they're always small and they're always economically struggling it's like i mm-hmm. feel that there are not enough economically struggling small towns out there in the world <laughs> without me adding more and this one in central oregon i think uh-huh back to so, america yes uh, so nowadays i'm sort of sitting in my by my kitchen uh, kitchen window looking out on this tiny uh, Swedish pine trees and some birches, mm-hmm. and instead I see the more magnificent ones of uh, of Oregon. How about you? 
Well, I am fi- I'm at the other end of the scale. I'm finishing a book <laughs> right now, uh, which is making me cry so much. Um, it's always the end of the book that is always the really tearful bit, but it's about a little girl who stops speaking when her parents separate. Mm. Um, and she develops this condition called selective mutism, which is where uh, it usually affects small children. They physically cannot speak except in very, very limited circumstances. And this little girl has gone from being this very singing, all singing, all dancing, happy little child to being completely silent. Um, And she spends every other weekend with her dad, who is staying with her auntie. And her aunt is also a silent shell of herself because she's just been widowed. Uh, She's a woman in her mid-40s who had married an an older man. Uh, And she'd anticipated being with him for the rest of her life and it wouldn't really matter they didn't have their own family because you know they'd have each other Mm. but he's unexpectedly died and left her on her own with two pugs uh farm mups mups Mm. (laughs) and um she is coming to terms with the fact that she isn't going to be a mother Mm. and which she hadn't really thought about until she realized it wasn't going to happen and so she has this little girl coming to her house who won't speak and you think it's all going to be terrible. But the little chink of light in this rather sad situation is the little girl talks to the dogs uh, because they're so unthreatening. And also because, I mean, it's another reason I like using dogs in books. When human beings talk to dogs, although we use words to talk mm. to the dogs, the dogs don't hear the words. They hear the language in our face and our movements and our demeanour. So Women, I mean, the, the dogs are very good at reading human beings, so the dogs can communicate with this little girl who can't talk just as well <laughs> as everybody really else. They don't really care. They're, they're watching her. And in fact, the auntie, who is very worried that she doesn't have the skills to communicate with the mm. child because she doesn't have children of her own, because she's so good at watching her dogs and responding to their needs by looking at what they're doing, she's very good at looking at her little niece and doing the same kind of thing. You know, she, she reads her expressions. So it's a very it's a very moving book about uh, I think a lot of my books are about realizing your life is going in a different direction mm. but actually working out ways to be happy with it. Yeah. Do you have plans this summer? Do you have summer holidays booked? I'm going on this trip to the US in May <gasps> to talk about my book and visit lots and lots of bookshops in uh, Midwestern states. It's going to be absolutely brilliant and I'm then I'll end it this. I think in Oregon doing some research. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I'll be back in time for the Swedish summer however that turns out to be. Oh, I'm very envious. <laughs> So, so I basically have no summer plans, probably except writing, since I won't have written anything during May. Well, you might be able to write on the plane. <laughs> yes, of course, of course. How about you? Uh, well, I, I tend to hide away in the summer because mm. I'm very ginger and I don't react well. And actually, I'm quite lucky because the British summer usually lasts three days. Uh, we never know when the three days are going to come. It could be April, it could be August, but uh, we, we can't plan around the British summer. Um, I think I will be, I will be writing. Um, hopefully sometime in London. Hmm. It's funny, whenever people say, where are you going on holiday this summer? I nearly always seem to be finishing a book. So <laughs> the answer is always, ah. <laughs> if you write full time, as I think you do, yeah. holiday is also a sort of difficult concept. I yes. mean, if it's going well, you write on Christmas Eve. Exactly. If this, it's going bad, you won't write on Monday morning. This, this is such a classic writer's conversation. I don't even know when the bank holidays are. <laughs> no, of because course not. I don't get the day off. I think I'm sure I'm sure there must be you know when when you go to the hairdressers and they say so you're going anywhere nice this summer it's like 
No. no I'm sure never. there must be a different question you can ask a writer. Yeah. So, and it's and also the question, are you going anywhere nice this summer? Um, have you read anything good recently? No, I don't read other people's <laughs> books in case they're better than mine and I feel inadequate and stupid. <laughs> that is very good advice for writers as well. Yeah, I think the only, the only question you can ask a writer that mm. is going to get a sort of long response is, where do you get your notebooks from? <laughs> oh, that is an excellent Do you know discussion. any good stationery shops? <laughs> What's your favourite band? Yes, exactly. My lamey safari. It's a safari. How about that? <laughs> and that's it from this episode of Speaking of Stories. My name is Lucy Dillon. And I'm Katarina Bilval. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Speaking of Stories. You can hear all of our episodes on iTunes or via Acast. <laughs>